everybody. You can be seated. I want to thank you for being here. As you are seated, I'm going to send our kids out to their kids' classes. We were actually going to take a break from some of the things we're going to do during kids' classes and put them all in one classroom. And we came to the realization we just have too many kids to do that and not enough space. And that's a beautiful thing. So thank you to our volunteers to continue working throughout the summer and being a part of that. If you are with us and you have been with us since March, you will know we've been in the book of Ephesians. We are continuing the book of Ephesians today, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would challenge you to open up to that. Or if you have a digital device, find Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And as you are going there, I do want to remind you that Father's Day is two weeks away. And yes, we do need dad jokes. And so with that, I shall open with one today just to give you an idea of what we're expecting. How far can a dog run into the woods? Halfway, because after that, he's coming out of the woods. Yeah, see, that, that, you can save it. Email it to me. That's what I need. That's what I need. So as you think about that, I want to let you know that we are halfway That's the reason why I tell that joke, because a halfway spot is always a good spot. Last week, drove to Phoenix to do my nephew's wedding. Thank you so much, Kyle and Bruce and all the volunteers who made the park event go without a hitch. Um, As I was driving, it's always good to hit that halfway point, because you know you're closer to the finish than you are to the start. Same thing if you're waiting for something. Same thing if you are working for something. When you hit that halfway point, it's just has a new and fresh feeling. With that, I want to direct your attention to the screen behind me where it says, Walk Worthy. Our new logo since Ephesians chapter 1 on March 5th, we had been doing Made Worthy. Today, we've hit the halfway point in the book of Ephesians. And that halfway point, a shift takes place. We go from being made worthy to our response and walk worthy worthy. The first part of this letter is all about our identity. It's about the riches that we have in Christ in that identity. It's all about the great mystery being revealed by Paul or to Paul through Christ. And then through that salvation that we have in Christ, we become one family. We're one new people group in Christ. We are the church. We're the church. And in Ephesians 4 through 6, we're going to see a shift take place from the fact that we have these riches in Christ now to our responsibilities of our salvation that come with that and those riches. Hence the reason why we call it walk worthy. As a matter of fact, those words or words similar to it, depending upon which translation you're in, are in verse 1 of chapter 4. Either walk worthy or or live worthy, basically meaning conduct your daily life worthy of the calling that you have received. Now, as I've been doing all the studying, so many of the different commentaries have different ways of what chapters 1 through 3 are described as and chapters 4 through 6 are described as. There's a, there's a description that they, they begin this shift. From 1 through 3, you have theology, to 4 through 6, it moves to practice. In 1 through 3, you have spiritual wealth, Four through six is spiritual walk. Spiritual privilege or position to spiritual practice. Blessings to behavior. We see Christ in us to others see us in Christ. 
The work of Christ in us and the work of Christ through us. Our inheritance in Christ or our life in Christ. But basically it boils down to this. You have identity and you have responsibility. Your call to salvation through the work of Jesus Christ is a call into the service of God. And that's what he's pointing out to us here. Jesus didn't just save you to go to heaven. Jesus didn't just save you to go to heaven. He saved you to live for Him. He saved you to do good works for Him and in His name, to rule with Him. And there's a long list of other things. But again, this book is broken into two sections. The first half of Ephesians is all about the calling that we have received. And then the second half is doing something about it. See, that calling we received, maybe you remember. Again, it's been a couple of months. But we were adopted into Christ's family. We've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we've been elected, we've been predestined. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins, and then we were raised to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places, all by God's amazing grace. The second half is about doing something about these truths. Doing something with these truths. But the question is, is how can we live or how can we walk in a manner worthy of all that Christ has done for us. How do we do it? How can my day-to-day living be considered worthy of Christ's call? I mean, that's a, that's a heavy thought, a heavy question to try and answer. But the first thing I think we need to do is we need to look at the word worthy. Or its root word, worth. The Greek word here, you know I don't use Greek a whole, whole lot, but the Greek word here that, that Paul uses is the word axios. And it means it has a built-in value, a value that is balanced out with something else, like basically on a scale, or even how much we pay or give or barter for something, that value that is there. For example, take a worker. There's a really good worker. You're going to say about that worker, they are worth their pay, or they are worth every penny. I mean, has anybody had somebody come pull weeds for them and said, man, that was worth every penny? But I didn't have to pull weeds. And they did a good job. Those are the kind of things that we're seeing in this word axios. Now, from a Christian standpoint, a believer who walks and lives in a manner worthy of their calling is one whose daily life is in balance with that high position that we have in Christ because of all that Christ has done for us that's listed in chapters 1 through 3. Our practical living matches our spiritual position. Our practical living matches our spiritual position. Now, when Paul is in transitioning with this letter, he is urging, and you'll see that word in verse 1, he is urging us to walk worthy. And my guess is, when you have to urge somebody to do something, it's because generally, they're not. They're falling short. My guess is, is that some, if not many, or even most of the church at Ephesus were not walking or living in a worthy manner. Unfortunately, not much has changed in 2,000 years. We still even see it today. I actually saw a post the other day that said, if Paul were alive today, the American church would be getting a letter. When you stop and think about it, it's probably true, but we already kind of have letters, don't we? The letters to the church at Ephesus and the letters to the church at Philippi and Galatia. What we see through the rest of this letter is Paul actually is going to tell us how to live in a worthy manner. He's going to tell us how to live in a worthy manner with unity in the church. 
He's also going to talk about diversity in the church. He's going to talk about our speech. He's going to talk about our relationships. He's going to talk about our marriages. He's going to talk about our work ethic. He's also going to talk about spiritual warfare. These are all things that he's laying out on how to walk worthy. How do we do it? I mean, really, when we go back to the first, as, we, as we've already said, the first three chapters of this book are doctrinal. These last three are about putting those doctrines or those teachings into practice. Basically what Paul is doing, if we want to summarize it all, he's saying this, you have an intrinsic, built-in value in Christ. Now, measure up. Walk this way. If you've seen our posters out there, everybody that's seen it immediately goes to Aerosmith and Run DMC in their head. It's okay. I understand that. If that's how you have to remember it, then that's how you have to remember it. But the thing is, we need to walk this way. Paul is saying, this is how we do it. Here is a challenge. That's another 90s song. Um, yeah, exactly. We're just going to roll these out, I guess, as we go. The challenge is on, though. He, he's dropping the challenge right there for us, but he's not just giving us a challenge, and he's telling us how to successfully complete the challenge. Starting right here in verse 1, when he says these words, Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Therefore, starts it off with just one simple transition statement. We've said it many times. When you see the word therefore, you find out what it is. Therefore. And as we look at it, this tells us what lies ahead based on what we've already read. What lies ahead based on what we've already read? Paul says, this is who you are. You're high calling in Christ. And I tell you that to remind you so you respond and you live accordingly. This is Christianity in a nutshell, in case you're wondering. It's what it means to be a Christian. Find out who you are in Christ and then live it out daily. Live it out daily. It's what many scholars would call a general calling. How God calls Christians to live in response to their salvation. And by the way, it's in response to their salvation, not for their salvation. I think there's far too many Christians who don't walk worthy of their calling. And I think the reason why is because they truly don't understand it. They haven't been discipled. They, they really haven't been taught, or what they have been taught is watered down and, and kind of weak sauce. It, it's not challenging in a way. The church and even the family have dropped the ball. People have missed or don't even know what Christ truly did for them and how they should respond. They've missed the fact that Christ calls them to live in response to what Christ has done for them. Not just get saved from hell and continue living the way you want to live, but instead live for Him. My question for you is this. Simply, easily, do you understand what Christ has done for you? Do you understand that intrinsic built-in value of what God has done for you and me through Christ? Do we understand that? Do you understand the value of your salvation? And I would love for you to understand that word value. And I'll give you an example of understanding value. In 1986, I was 10 years old. And I lived in Phoenix, and Phoenix had two seasons, hot and hotter. So when people would talk about four seasons, there's only one way I can relate to four seasons. You know what those four seasons were? Basketball, football, baseball, and hockey. That was the four seasons. And my life was based on those four seasons. All my friends, we would play according to the seasons, out front, except for hockey. We, we tried. 
But in it all too, I would be a big fan of whatever sports were going on. And because I'd be a big fan of that, I would go and I was kind of, I, I'd use all my allowance money to go buy sports cards. And I loved sports cards. I still have a whole bunch sitting out in the garage. Christy is just desperate for me to get rid of them. And I will not. And I'll tell you why here in just a moment. But in 1986, during basketball season, Fleer premiered a brand new card. And it had guys, and some of these names you may recognize or some of you don't have any idea who they are. They had guys like Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Alvin Adams, Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing, Carl Malone, Chris Mullen, Clyde Drexler. All these famous guys were on these cards of mine. And one that I haven't mentioned yet, but my guess would be that even if you don't know any of those other names, you know this one, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, in 1986-87, when they premiered those, Michael Jordan had been basically, it was considered a rookie, even though it wasn't his rookie season because it was a, a premiere, it was his rookie card. And in all of that, I, like I said, bought all of those cards, just in packs at the local grocery stores, you could buy them. And in my buying frenzy, I had all of those guys. And I still have all of those guys, except for one, Michael Jordan. And I'll tell you again, because it was the 80s and 90s, it's similar today like with the Cowboys or the Yankees and things like that. You either love them or you hate them. And as a 10-year-old boy, I hated the Bulls because I was a Suns fan. And the Suns went to the finals against the Bulls in the 90s with Michael Jordan. And nobody in my area really liked the Bulls except for one guy. So what? Do I do? Well, because he's my friend. I'm like, hey, you can have this Michael Jordan card. I don't want that Michael Jordan card. I don't want any bull stuff. Just give me a sack of marbles or something worthless in in response for it all. Something that I'll hold on to for the rest of my life. You know, that kind of thing like that. And in that, what I began to understand is that depending upon the graded condition today, That Michael Jordan card, if it's in perfect condition, sells for over $10,000. As a matter of fact, if you have the complete set in good condition, perfect condition, it's in the six figures for that set that I had as a 10-year-old boy. Now, I still have some of those other ones, and they're still of worth. Some of them are worth a a couple hundred, a couple thousand dollars on, on some of the ones that I have still. If they're in great condition, they're in the garage. So, you know. We'll talk about value and worth again at another time. But here's the thing that that I want you to understand. I, I didn't know what I had. I didn't realize its value then, and I didn't realize its future value to come. I didn't understand it. But see, here's the thing that I, the reason why I tell you that story is because I think people do the same thing with Christ and salvation. I don't think people truly understand the value of their salvation now, and they definitely don't understand the future value of it. And that's why sometimes we just give it away so freely. We may have the head knowledge, but we never let it affect our lives. We never let it move into us. And that's why I ask you this question. Why or or what is the value of your salvation? 
What is the value of your salvation? Because its value in your life will determine how you live and what you live for. If your salvation has not affected your lifestyle, if it has not affected the way you walk or the way you talk, both to people and about people, if it doesn't affect the way that you treat others, then your appraisal value, similar to my appraisal value of Michael Jordan card, is off. It has a different standard and you don't realize what you have. Jesus even told short parables about the value of the kingdom of heaven. Simple couple of verses to make sure that we understand the value of being a part of the family of God. Matthew 13 is where we find those at, and here's what it says in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. Now we could take a whole long time and unpack these three verses, but I'm going to just give you what it boils down to. There are two people here that are willing to give up everything they had been holding on to for the one thing that Christ had to offer. The most important thing that Christ had to offer. So my question is, are you willing to give up walking on your own, living on your own, based on your own wants, your own desires, and your own feelings, because you value Christ above all and want to walk worthy of the calling that He has brought for you. I ask that because of this. I don't believe a believer can, can walk worthy if he doesn't see the value of Christ. I don't think he's going to want or she's going to want to walk worthy by His Word and by His standards because we don't understand it and i know that's a strong statement but if you look at second timothy you're going to see what paul says to timothy in that second letter starting in verse 12 of chapter 3 says in fact all who want to live a godly life in christ jesus will be persecuted evil people and imposters will become worse deceiving and being deceived but as for you continue in what you have learned and firmly believed You know that those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'm not sure if you saw it there, but it says the word of God is needed for us to live by, and walk according to, to stay on the path, as I've been reading through Proverbs this week, to stay on the path that we have marked out for us. His word is a light unto our path. Do we understand that? Do people even do that anymore? Do they live their lives according to Scripture, or do they make Scripture fit into their lives? How do we respond? And oh yeah, I tossed in verse 12. As I open that up, because it said, anybody who wants to live a godly life would be what? Persecuted. Why would I throw that part in there? Well, I want you to go back to verse 1 and see how Paul describes himself. It is similar to how he describes himself in verse 1 of chapter 3. And that is a prisoner. A prisoner of the Lord and a prisoner for the Lord. You think Paul knew persecution? Think about Philippians 1. 21, a verse that we like to quote. 
for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. How much value do you think Paul put on his salvation? He was willing to suffer for it. He was willing to be persecuted for it. He was willing to be imprisoned for it. And he was even willing to die for it. Just read Paul's account in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28, of the things that he went through for Christ. The list is long, and I will guarantee that if he didn't value his salvation, he never would have went through it. He would have quit halfway and said, this is not worth it. How many times did we do that? It's not worth it. But Paul knew the value, so he knew it was worth it. Jesus says it too. You know, this time last summer, as crazy as this is to think about, we were going through the Beatitudes. One of the Beatitudes is blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. Jesus also talks about the fact that people hated him first. So guess what? Followers of him are going to be hated too. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 says these words, and whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know what he's telling you right there? He's telling you how to walk worthy by taking up your cross and following him. I mean, those are humbling thoughts. Those are humbling questions to ponder. Do we really value our salvation? But as we enter these next three chapters of practical application in Ephesians, he's going to be telling us how to do it. How to do it. Even though it's a humbling thing. And speaking of humbling, let's look at verses 2 and 3. I'm going to read for you verse 1 again. It says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. How are you supposed to walk worthy? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now we might call that list godly character. Godly character. Paul saying these are the things that should be evident in our daily living as we walk worthy of the calling that we've received. And we'll get to that here in a second, but I want to really focus on verse 3 first before we look at verse 2. Because it says, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is this constant thing that goes on with people who have a high value of their salvation. That constant thing is this. They're the ones that make every effort to keep the unity. And by the way, keeping unity doesn't mean producing unity. The Holy Spirit's already provided the unity. We're there to keep it. And that's what he prayed for, if you remember back in verse, uh, chapter 3, by the way. Remember, through the Holy Spirit, we were connected in one family, right? That's what it says. We're the, the bonds of the Holy Spirit, the bonds of peace. It, it's what connects us and brings all believers around the world together. And we have the peace of the Spirit that unites us. And we're to make every effort to keep that peace. But the question is, is how? How do we do that? That's where verse 2 comes in. First thing is, with all humility. With all humility. The basic meaning here is thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, thinking of yourself less. By the way, this happens to coincide with the fact this is June. Humility is in contradiction to pride. We are supposed to be thinking of ourselves less. And if you really break down the words that Paul uses here, it actually means get down as flat as possible so nobody can see you at all. That is the humility that he is talking about. This is supposed to be the mindset that keeps unity in the church. Have a proper view of yourself. Die 
to yourself. Die to your fleshly impulses. Die to your fleshly desires. Die to your fleshly feelings. Get flat and let God do His will and let it lead to verse 3 where we are preserving unity in the church. Well, how do we do this? One, you have to see yourself and judge yourself in view of God through His eyes and not man's. See, we live in this crazy celebrity culture. How do you think Paul will be viewed today? I mean, honestly, do you think... I I grew up Catholic, and the church I went to was called St. Paul's. Do you think he had any idea, as he was going all through things, he's like, I'm doing this for sainthood. That's what I'm going... No. How does he describe himself? Throughout Scripture, he calls himself the chief of sinners, the, the least of all God's people, the last of the apostles. This is a type of mindset that he had, and that mindset develops when you are in the presence of God, when you are spending time with God. Because the more we know about God and the more we know who He is, we also see ourselves for who we are and realize we are truly nothing apart from Him and how far we fall short of His glory. When we live in His truth, we live by His truth, it changes everything. When we're not living in what we might call our own truth. And to tag this, humility does not mean we're wishy-washy when it comes to truth. Bearing with one another, that's also in this verse, does not mean saying the truth doesn't matter. It's a huge mistake to confuse humility with uncertainty. But the unfortunate truth is that many today do just that. They confuse them. They think the only mindset, the only posture to have towards humility is to be uncertain, to be vague, and to be weak towards the truth. Is that what Paul meant? No way. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I think G.K. Chesterton put his finger on the problem over 70 years ago. As I read this, you're going to think he wrote it yesterday, by the way. In a book called Orthodoxy, he said this, What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty is moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty is settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man doesn't assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. I think that's because we have lifted ourselves up in pride and we have lowered God in pride. That's why when we lay ourselves flat, we lift God up. I think it's also right because Paul... Paul actually says later in this chapter, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, he wants Christians not to be babes blown around by every wind of doctrine. He says, I want you guys to be solid. I want you to come to the unity of knowledge of the Son of Jesus Christ, 13 and 14 of chapter 4. Remember, this humility is there to keep the unity. And that humility, again, that leads to unity, it's not about uncertainty. It's not about doubt or vagueness or confusion. It's the mindset that says this, I'm not the center Truth is the center, and I submit to the truth and go where it leads. I am not the king. God is the king. My will is not the law. God's word is the law. I don't tell God how many faiths are acceptable to him. He tells me. I don't define the foundation of unity. The spirit of God does. It's not about me. It's not about me lifting myself up. It's about me lifting Christ up in humility. I tell you this, all the things that are listed here, Christ is 
and was the ultimate example of. He is the ultimate example of humility. And when he came to earth, you know what? He didn't try to be something he wasn't. The incarnation was him fully on display in humility. Christ is humble. Therefore, we need to bury our pride. Or dare I say, kill it. And walk humbly with our God. This must happen if we're going to walk worthy of our calling. That's his humility. Next thing it says is with all gentleness. With all gentleness. You want to hear that word defined? Gentleness is the attitude that submits to God's dealing without rebellion and man's unkindness without retaliation. You want to know who the ultimate example of gentleness was? Church answer. It's Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty nine says, Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly or gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Please make note of this. A lot of times we see the word lowly, we see the word meek, we see the word gentle, and it comes with some sort of weakness in our minds. But that's not it. The actual definition is power under control. Power under control. Sometimes when we see Jesus, we see him as the Lamb of God, which he entirely is. The Lamb of God that was led to the slaughter and he never opened his mouth. But you know what we forget? He's also the Lion of Judah. He's also the Lion of Judah. And in that Lion of Judah, when it comes to injustice done to others and we see the injustice done to the name of God, it came out. The Lion of Judah is on full display. It's power under control. Do we have our pride under control? Humility. Do we have our power under control with gentleness? The next thing he says with patience. Humility's hard. Gentleness, hard. Patience, oh, really hard. And the KJV, if you're a KJV kind of person, it says the word long-suffering. And the reason why it says long-suffering is because the definition actually is this. Suffer long under difficult circumstances. You know who is still and was and still is the ultimate example of patience and long-suffering? Yeah, it's Jesus. Good, good answer, guys. <laughs> Isaiah 53, commonly a passage we read around Good Friday, talks about that. Let me read it for you. Would you follow along as it's on the screen? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised. Look at these next things. And we didn't what? Value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Isaiah prophesied it. Jesus lived it. Jesus went through great pain and suffering at the hands of evil people. Can I ask you a question? Should we expect anything less in our lives? As we go through trials, my guess is you're probably like me. I grow more in trials, not that I want them, but I grow more in trials than I do when times are easy. Because when times are easy, who's in charge? Who's got it all under control? This guy. But when times aren't and I don't have any control, I'm like, oh, I guess I better ask God for some help. And that's kind of where we end up at. 
And Paul, man, when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, right after he talks about the humility of Christ, he says this in verse 13, For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to His good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Be long-suffering and patient. So that you may be blameless and pure. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. Are we living in a crooked and perverted generation? Should we be blameless and pure by living these things out? Among whom you will shine like the stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Can I ask you a question? How does the world see you? How does the world see you? Do they see you as one who is walking worthy of being called a follower of Christ? Are you shining the light? Are you walking patiently in humility humility with power under control? Those are questions we have to ask ourselves. The next thing he says, bearing with one another in love. Well, guess what? Keep this unity thing. It means we have to make allowances for the faults and failures of fellow believers. For different personalities. For different abilities. It means we love others deeply because in 1 Peter 4.8 it says, love covers a multitude of sins. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the marks that we see when we walk worthy of the Lord. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. And you know what we don't see? is the opposite of those. Pride arrogance, impatience, anger. Really, if you tie all those up in a nice little bow and call it one package, you know what it is? Self-centeredness. We can't be self-centered. We need to be God-centered. They've got to go because they are unworthy of being called a follower of Christ. We have to remember what Christ did for us. We have to remember that He took away our sins. That, that He is the one who made us a new creation. That He is the one who brought us into a new family. Remember what he did, and remember how he did it. As we remember, it changes our, our response, or at least it should. We need to make, and by the way, that is an active verb, not a passive verb. We need to make every effort to keep the unity in his church. Well, guess what? I'd like to wrap up right there, but Paul's got seven one statements that he just wants me to talk about right now. And I'm going to talk about them quick, just for you and just for the teachers back in the back. But here's what it says in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. He is focusing on the foundational points of this unity we're supposed to be keeping. And here is what he says. First, believers are in one body. Christ's body. We are a new creation. We are a new community. We are to work together for God's glory, not for our own. That is how we keep the unity. Believers have one spirit. You know what it is? It's God's spirit who indwells believers and unifies them and empowers us as we will see as we continue through the book of Ephesians, empowers us to do the ministry of Christ. This should encourage us to keep that unity. Believers also have one hope. We sang that last song. I didn't even talk to Kyle about music this week. I knew he'd do something, Phil Wickham. I just wasn't sure which one it would be. And living hope was it. And that nails it. That nails it. He is our living hope. Hope 
that we have is not found in this world that is temporary. Or we don't find hope in the things of this world. It is in Christ both now and forever. That is why we call it a living hope. Eternal living hope. And having that one hope gives us a foundational thing to keep the unity. Fourth thing he said was believers have one Lord. I've said this before and I'll say it again. A Lord is a person who's in charge. Even going back to feudal times, medieval stuff, a Lord was a person who was in charge. We are just the peasants. When we understand we have one Lord, that Jesus is the one who is in charge and not us, we follow him. Plain and simple, period. While the world's going to follow passions, they're going to follow their desires, they're going to give themselves over to fake gods, we follow him. And when we follow him, guess what that does? Because we're all in one accord, keeps the unity. Believers have one faith, one truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The gospel is clear. I put my faith and my trust in that truth. Have you put your faith and your trust in that truth? Because when we do, we will make every effort to keep the unity that is found in that one faith. Believers have one baptism. If you're a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, you and I share a common experience of being spiritually baptized into Christ. We have the baptism of the Spirit in us. We are united with Him, and that, that's what water baptism is all about. If you've never been baptized before, let's talk about that. About being buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk in a new life, coming together in that family, that physical profession of an inward change. Believers, number seven, also have one God and Father. Back to chapter one, you were adopted into his family when you became a believer. I was adopted into his family when I became a believer. We share the same Father. He is God of all and over all. He is the Father of all of his children, regardless if you're male or female, regardless if you are black or white or any other color, it doesn't matter your race, regardless of your IQ, regardless of your economics, regardless of any of those things, we are one big adopted family. And guess what? We keep the unity because of these seven things, these foundational things. There's going to be little things. That's the reason why there's some 40,000 denominations out there because there's little things that separate us. But these are the things that keep us together. And these are the things we need to focus on. We've been blessed by God with all the riches in the heavenly places. We have been adopted into his family. By grace, we have been saved. We are a new creation. We are a new community. Live like it. That is what he's challenged us to do. Walk in the truth. Walk in humility. Walk in gentleness. Walk in patience and love for the church. Our challenge is to walk worthy. Our challenge is to live worthy. Our challenge is to, to conduct ourselves on a daily basis worthy of the calling that we have. And guess what? Next week we're going to look at verses 7 through 16. And that's actually going to talk about diversity in the church. Going from yet unity to diversity because unity does not mean uniformity or sameness. If you are in Christ, you have different gifts. And you have different abilities to offer the body of Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So if you're like, I don't want to hear about serving and serving with my gifts... Skip, we'll see you in two weeks on Father's Day. But if you are and you are in Christ, man, He did not save you just to get you into heaven and keep you out of hell. He saved you so you could do good works in His name, for His name. But I keep saying, 
in Christ. If you're in Christ, this is where we're at. But if you are not in Christ or struggling with walking worthy, let's talk today after we pray. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you continue to do and how you continue to work in each and every one of our lives and change us for your glory. Because, God, we can't change ourselves. God, I want to confess how often I don't put the value of my salvation into proper assessment. I don't put my value of my salvation into what it truly is and how life-changing it needs to be. But God, for far too many times, I try and do things on my own. And I confess and, and I ask for your forgiveness. God, my guess is there's people in here that are just like me. Thinking we can do it on our own, when in reality we can't. I can't even take my next breath without your say-so. That's a huge, mind-blowing thought. God, I want to live for you. I want to give you my all and my everything, but I can't do it my own power. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to work through my life to make this thing happen and make me walk worthy of the calling that I received, to help me keep the unity that comes with being in the Spirit. God, I don't think this, I'm the only person praying this right now. I pray you speak to each person in this room, and if somebody in here is not in Christ, or really truly struggling with this idea of walking worthy, still walking in their own, I pray that you're opening hearts, opening minds to have the discussion, to invite you in, and let you be the one Lord of our life. I pray in your name. Amen.